Uh, turn your Bibles, if you would, please, to Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4. And in the fourth chapter, we're here in a section of the book where Paul begins to preach or talk about the practical side of Christianity. And in the first three chapters, what we've seen is a very a doctrinal view, and Paul lays a, a doctrinal foundation for what he's about to say in chapter 4. And as I preached in our last Wednesday night sermon, or time before last, I think it was, that Paul begins that uh, first verse of chapter 4 with the word therefore. And what he's saying is that based upon all the doctrines that I put before you and taught you in these uh, first three chapters, although he didn't use the word, wouldn't have used the word chapters because there weren't any, but in the, that first section of the book in which we have these three chapters, based upon those doctrines that I have taught, you need to walk and act and talk like Christians. And he put it this way, walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. Walking worthy means that we are making progress in our Christian lives. Paul doesn't tell us here, sit worthy. He doesn't say, stand worthy. He says, walk worthy. And that means that after we're saved, that we're not to remain in a stagnant spiritual state. We're to move on for the Lord. Our lives are continually move, moving forward as we grow in the, in the riches of the grace and knowledge and love of Jesus Christ. Now, obviously, as we move forward in our Christian lives, we have to interact with people that are around us. When you're saved, God expects you, first of all, to do this. You need to, of course, be baptized and then get into a, and be in a, in a Bible-believing church. And for everybody here tonight, I think as I look around, I believe just about everybody is a member here. I, I can tell you, I don't think there's a better Bible-believing church to be a member of than Berean Baptist Church. You'll pardon me if I'm prejudiced, but I believe that that's true. And uh, so that's what God wants us to do. He wants us to get into a fellowship of Christians. And then as we are in that church, we're to do everything that we can to make that church better. Be sensitive to the people around us. Now, my message tonight is for the body of Christians, Berean Baptist Church, who meet right here on Country Cub Drive. I mean, we are a body of Christ. And this evening, I want to talk a little bit about the unity that should exist among Christians in the same church. So my message tonight is the sensitive saved. And again, if you're a member of Berean Baptist Church, that's what you should be. You should be sensitive to the needs of others that are around you. We need to be concerned about the unity that we have in our church. Everything that we do as members of the, of the same church should promote the unity of the body. Now, I'd like you to stand with me, please, as we read uh, the first three verses of Ephesians chapter 4. And Paul begins in verse number 1 and says, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. Uh, for another opportunity to preach your word tonight. Uh, we just pray, Lord, you might uh, bless as we preach the message. May your word go forth in the way that you would have it to. And Lord, just speak to our hearts. Help us to be concerned about one another. And we do pray for all the members of the church who couldn't be here tonight for various reasons. Just be with each one. Lord, we pray that we might promote unity in our church. So we give you the thanks and the praise for all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. If I could sum up salvation in one word, the word that I would use is glorify. Now, you've heard me preach that many times before, that the purpose 
of all people who are saved, and really the purpose of everyone that, that's ever been born into the world is to give glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, salvation is not just for the purpose of giving people eternal life. It's not just for the purpose that we can be pardoned from our sins. Those are indispensable parts of salvation, and they're great gifts that God gives us. But in the end, it all comes down to this, that salvation is for the purpose of glorifying God. That's why man was created, glorify God. But since the fall of man, what has happened is that there's been a separation between uh, the creature and the creator. I mean, there's been a, a break in the fellowship of man with God. And what Paul tells us in chapter 1 of Ephesians is that it is the purpose of God to finally, in the consummation of all the ages, to gather together one thing, uh, all things in Christ. I mean, this is what God is working towards in the creation since the fall. That means that at some point in the future, when God wraps up the entire world, when all of this is over and done with, all of creation will once again be unified. And so if I were to give you another singular word about salvation, what it's all about, we would have to use the word unity. God wants us to be in complete harmony and complete unity in his creation. Now, if that is true and I think that it is true, then I could tell you that, in a manner of speaking, that God's head start on unity is the whole issue of salvation. God's already working on the problem of how to bring all the creation back to him. And that's what Christ came uh, on the cross to do. When he came to die for our sins, Christ uh, started this process, you might say, of unifying all of creation once again. So man's salvation in the consummation of the ages is that all, uh, all of God's creation would be back in unity with the Creator. Now, if you're saved, of course, you have already been unified with God. And we would think that since we're all unified with God, that is, we're all saved people uh, here tonight and all saved people in the world, you could say, surely all people must be unified with one another if we're unified with God. But in fact, that's not the case because we're not all unified with one another. And the problem that we're not or the reason why that we're not is because of sin. Sin is a disrupting factor. And so what happens when a, when a child of God gets saved, when you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, we understand this, that we still have the sinful nature that's in us. And as long as we're in this body, as long as we're in the flesh, we'll have that sinful nature. And the Bible tells us we're not going to be rid of that until finally we, we leave this body. Either we die or we're translated in the rapture. We're going to be in a sinful body. And as long as we're in the body, we have the problem with sin. And sin is going to cause us to have this disunity. And so we have to work on the problem of having this sin in our lives because it destroys our unity. Now, here's something that sin always does. It always produces conflicts. Sin produces strife. Sin is what causes wars. I mean, that's why we're in the war in Iraq right now. It's because of sin. I mean, that's the ultimate cause. Sin causes divorce. Sin causes Christians to fight among themselves. And this is what Paul knows as he writes these scriptures here. He knows that when, when church members, people in the very same church, when they aren't unified, then at least in a temporary way, the cause of Christ is going to be defeated. Now, that's the subject tonight. As Christians, as members of the same church, we're to be part of the sensitive saved. So we do what Paul says here to endeavor, as he says in verse number three, to keep the unity of the spirit. 
Now, that's what I want to talk about. Being a sensitive, saved person means that unity is your chief objective. Now, there are two aspects of unity that I want to speak about tonight. First of all is the production of unity. As sinful Christians, how do we overcome the sin in our lives and how do we begin to to be unified with one another? How can we start, you might say, being reconciled to one another in the same way that we've been reconciled with God? Now, that's a very good question and one I think that we all ought to ask because the world or the, the Christian world, you might say, answers that, that question wrongly almost all of the time. They have a whole different viewpoint of how that we can achieve unity as Christians. And so what they start to do is to look at the common things that we have, I mean, the, the common enemy that we have, and the most important thing in the mind of this, of this ecumenical, Christianity, ecumenical Christianity is that we can somehow produce unity by the external factors that we have that seem to be similar to one another. So we try to begin with, uh, they say, with, with external factors. We survey all the landscape that's around us. We look at all the things that are against Christ. Then we pull together all of our common denominators. We pull together what things that might be alike, and then we fight this common enemy. But that's not the approach that Paul gives. And it's not the approach that he gives right here in the Scriptures because he's teaching us that unity does not begin externally. Where does it begin? Well, unity begins internally. Unity starts with what's on the inside of you and then it works its way to the outside. Now, as I say, the spirit of the, of the ecumenical movement is to concentrate on what we, not on what we have internally, but what's external to us. Look at the outside and, and look at all the external ways that we can be unified together. And then hopefully through that, eventually we'll come to the place where we're unified on the inside. So much of the basis of ecumenicism is that because your church has a steeple and our church has a steeple, we must be alike. And because you have a church that meets at 11 o'clock on Sunday morning, and we have a church that meets on Sunday morning at 11 o'clock, we must be alike. And so what we do, we need to, to get together. We need to come together and work together with all these little common things that we have. That's not Paul's approach. You don't start with the external similarities and hope that you can produce unity. So that's true on the inside of our church as we think about individual Christians as members of this church. And it's also true the bigger picture as we think about Christians all across the world. We can't start with what's external. So how do we start? Well, the answer is right here in the scriptures. Unity is based doctrinally. This is how we achieve unity. Now, I don't know if you caught this. I hope that you did. But as we studied the first three chapters, they're doctrinal chapters. The first three chapters are for the purpose of laying a doctrinal foundation for what Paul is about to say in chapter 4. And so when Paul says, therefore, in chapter 4, it has to do everything with what he said preceding in those first first three chapters. So if there is to be unity among Christians, the cue has to come from doctrine. To be unified, you must have the same doctrine. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means that unity is theological. So the very thing that modern Christianity tries to avoid when they speak of unity is the only thing that's ever going to produce it. 
You know, as the pastor of the church, I, I constantly get invitations from different churches in the community. Why don't you come to our prayer breakfast? Why don't you come join us in this campaign? Or why don't you help us out in this crusade? I mean, we even had an offer back in the summer that we would combine our vacation Bible school with another church. And so you know what they were saying? Let's lay aside the doctrinal differences. We may not agree together on some things, but we can come together and we can do this. But I would ask you, where is the basis for unity if unity is not found in truth? If, if your basis for unity is not the truth, where can you find unity at all? And some people might ask the question, well, why is Berean Baptist such a separated church? The answer is doctrine. We have different doctrine. If the doctrine's not the same, folks, nothing else, else at all matters. Now, with many churches, the fundamental difference in, in, in what we believe has to do with things like the Holy Spirit. I mean, we have a difference of opinion about the way that the Holy Spirit works with people. We have a difference of opinion about the things like gifts of the Spirit. So how are we going to join up with a church that has a completely different idea of how the Holy Spirit works when the Holy Spirit himself is the basis of unity? The truth about the Scripture and what the Holy, Holy Spirit teaches about Scripture, if we're not agreed on that, where can you have unity? But most churches, are, are it's okay with them to lay aside all of the doctrine... And the problem here, folks, is that if you're a church that stands for nothing, you've heard it before, then you're going to fall for everything. Now, just recently, I had a missionary who called me, and, and he wanted to come to our church. And, of course, I'm all for missions. I mean, I, I believe that we ought to support missions. But one of the things that we do is we very carefully screen missionaries. I mean, if they want to come and speak at our church, the first thing we try to do is to find out where do you stand doctrinally? What kind of things do you believe in? So we have this questionnaire. I can't remember exactly how long it is. It must be eight or ten pages, at least, that of, of doctrinal questions that the missionary has to fill out so that we know where he stands on these different issues. Well, this particular missionary uh, called me, and he had a different idea after he'd filled out his, his sheet, you know, and sent it back to us. He had a different idea about things like baptism, for instance, and the Lord's Supper. And some people would think, well, what's the big issue about baptism? I mean, why bring that up? I and mean, that's not so significant, is it? Folks, baptism is a very significant doctrine. In fact, the missionary's job is to go out and see that people get saved and organize those people into churches. And you can't have properly constituted churches without proper baptism. It's a prerequisite to even having a church. So how can you say that the baptism's not important? Now, obviously, all of us know, I mean, you're saved tonight. You know that baptism does not make you a Christian. It has nothing at all with whether you're saved or not. But baptism has a lot to say about whether you can be a member of the Lord's church. You see, one thing that we do not believe here, we do not believe in this, this uh, invention, this monstrosity called a universal invisible church. We do not believe that. That's a Reformation doctrine. I don't believe the Bible teaches universal invisible church. We believe that in order to be uh, in the Lord's church, you're in a local visible body, and that is the only manifestation of the Lord's church upon this earth. And how you get into that body is through baptism. I mean, we believe as Baptists that the door to the church is baptism. So this is a very important doctrine. Well, this missionary disagreed with me on the issue of the authority of baptism. And he looked at it like, well, it doesn't really make any difference where your baptism, where your baptism comes from. One baptism is just as valid as another. 
And so we couldn't be unified on that doctrine. So what we agreed was, you and I don't see eye to eye on this. Our ministries don't see eye to eye, so we're not a match. He didn't really like that too much, but I said, it's just not going to work because we have a different idea about baptism that's very important to us. But we also talked about the other ordinance of the church. We also talked about the Lord's Supper. Now, this particular fellow believed that it was all right to admit unbaptized people to the Lord's Supper. Well, I think that's a very important doctrine. Now, when Paul tells us in, in, in 1 Corinthians, when he talks about examining ourselves and, and, and looking over ourselves as we partake of the Lord's Supper, this is very important. I mean, how could, you, how could you deny or say that I don't want to be baptized, which is one of the most basic doctrines of the Bible. That's the first thing you're supposed to do after you get saved. How can you say, I don't want to obey the Lord in baptism, but it would be all right to admit that person to the Lord's Supper? How would that be possible? You see, we couldn't do that because we're not unified in doctrine. And so when we come together for the Lord's Supper, I mean, here we have a group of people that we're of one mind and one purpose. We agree doctrinally with one another on these issues like baptism and Lord's Supper and many other things. So we can't join up and we can't support missionaries or anybody like that who disagrees with our very basic fundamental doctrines of the Scripture. So if we're to have unity, we have to agree on doctrine. And the very truth of the matter is we will have endless strife within our church if we don't come together on our doctrine. Then also, I don't think that we can base unity on anything that's extra-biblical. And what I mean by that is we can't just decide, well, let's ignore chapters 1 through 3, and let's decide on some other basis that we can, have, we can have our unity. I mean, forget about what the Bible says. We'll just make up some doctrine, and then we'll agree that's our basis of unity. And, you know, that's exactly what false churches do. Mormons, for instance, I mean, they're not Christians, first of all, but they do have a basis for unity. And what is their basis? Well, the Bible's not good enough for them. So what they do is they latch on to the musings, crazed musings, of a false prophet named Joseph Smith. And there's the basis for their unity. Seventh-day Adventists, they look at the writings of Ellen G. White, and they believe that what Ellen G. White said is on par with Scripture. I mean, it's equal to what God said. So they reject the authority of the Bible in favor of Ellen G. White. Then you have uh, the Jehovah Witnesses. They believe that the watchtower is inspired. And so they reject the authority of the Bible based upon what the watchtower says. Then you take the largest body of what we call Christians today, what most people call Christians, the Roman Catholic Church. They believe that tradition is superior to the Scriptures. And so if the Bible contradicts their tradition, then which is wrong? The Bible. Tradition supersedes Scripture. So do you see a problem here? I mean, is there a problem with that? If the basis is not biblical doctrine, if that's not the basis of unity, where are we going to find it? Now, here's the problem. When you accept any kind of doctrine out there and you make that the basis for unity, you know what could happen to you? You could end up Waco, Texas with David Koresh, federal agents knocking on your door. I mean, that could happen to you if you just take anything. You can't go outside of the Bible to find a basis for unity. So we can't start externally. We always have to start internally. Now, now what I'm trying to give you here is the big picture on unity. I mean, this is the overall picture. It has to be produced internally and not externally. But now we've got to get down to a little bit more personal level with this. Let's bring it down to where you and I live. 
I mean, Paul doesn't expect that we're going to ignore the foundations in the first part uh, of what we just talked about, those first three chapters. He doesn't think we're going to ignore that. And so he puts down all the concepts, and then based on the concepts, he says, now walk worthy. Endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit. Now, what takes place between walking worthy and endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit is what we're going to talk about next. Now, secondly, let's talk about the preservation of unity. And Paul gives us some concepts for that. Now, uh, Michael, I told you you're not going to find this on the screen tonight, but I want to read a scripture to you. In Galatians 5, verse 15, it says, But if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that you're not consumed of one another. I added that because I was driving home from the airport today, and I passed a car, and on the bumper sticker of the car, it said, God save me from your followers. And the first thing that I thought about that, what a terrible thing. I mean, for somebody to say something, God save me from your followers. And I drove past that car, and I kind of looked at that guy, and, you know, he was, I don't know, he was, he must have thought he was a retro hippie or something. I mean, he, just, he looked the part. And I, how sad that was. But then I began to think about what he said, what that bumper sticker said. And you can take that in a totally different way. God saved me from your followers. And that needs to be done in a lot of churches. We need to be saved from some of the people that we worship with. I mean, some of the people that are even members of our own church sometimes. God, please save us from them because they are the worst critics that we have. I mean, they're the worst people, the hardest people on us sometimes. And that's why Paul says in Galatians 5.15, But if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that you're not consumed of one another. Now, Paul gives us here four concepts in verse number 2 that lead to the unity of the Spirit. And for you, as an individual Christian, if you want to preserve the unity of Spirit in your church, you've got to get these four concepts down. Concepts down. The four concepts that he gives are lowliness, meekness, long-suffering, and forbearance. So let's talk about for just a few minutes what Paul means by each of those. First of all, lowliness. And lowliness means that you need to be a humble person, but you are to seek humility and not to claim it. You see, the first method of preserving unity is how you look at yourself. How do you view yourself? You know, there's one characteristic of all humans that's the basis for all of our sin. And this one characteristic is what caused sin in the first place. You know what it is? Everybody should know. Pride, exactly. All of us have pride. And if we come to the place where we get, where we say, we don't have this pride, it's not a part of me, I have become a humble person, then you can guarantee yourself you are not a humble person. You have not arrived yet. Satan introduced sin into the universe through the problem of pride. Now, when you think about it, the world is not looking for humble people. They're not looking for humility. The world exalts pride. I mean, when you talk to people, what do they want to talk about? Well, let's hear about my accomplishments. You need to hear about what I'm doing. And and they think that what they do, and all of us do, what we do is more important than what somebody else does. So I need to invite you over and see my trophies. Come over and see all the awards that I've got. Pride is a common element of humanity. I mean, boasting is something that people do. That's just what we do. My children are better than your children. And in case you didn't notice, my grandbaby's better looking than your grandbaby. And it's true. I mean, we all have this pride. Pride and boasting is a part of all of us. And you know, some preachers are immune. Preachers do a lot of boasting as well. You know, that's why 
That's, that's why Dr. So-and-so, who never bothered to get a degree from an accredited university, will put doctor in front of his name. You know why? Because he's proud of that title. Yeah, he's proud of the title. You know, Arthur Pink, who was eminently qualified for his doctorate, eminently qualified, refused to be called doctor. You know why? Because he said, it exalts me and not Christ. People will look at me instead of Christ. Now, I'm not complaining about doctors in general and, and about, you know, people that, 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 that go to school and they spend years there getting accredited degrees. That's a great thing. It's a good thing. But I noticed that Paul never signed in his letters, Dr. Paul. Pride is the basis for all sin. Do you know that's why God excluded humans from the work of salvation? Now, some preachers will say, oh, yes, you have a part in your salvation. You have your part and God has his part. But any time that you interject anything into salvation that comes from a human, that comes from man, there is a basis for pride. And that's why Paul wrote, not of works lest any man should boast. Any human intervention leaves room for boasting. Now, humility, on the other hand, what this does, it keeps me grounded. It makes me understand who I really am. Humility gives me self-awareness. It means that, that I understand truly that I'm an unworthy sinner and I deserve nothing from God. I deserve nothing at all. I don't deserve anything but wrath if I deserve anything. Humility gives me Christ awareness. If I walk worthy... It's only because Christ was worthy and he saved me by his righteousness. You see, Christ is the standard of righteousness. I can never live up to Christ's righteousness. And the only way that I can ever be worthy is by grace. It's the only way I can work, walk worthy. It's not me, it's Christ. And then Christ also demonstrated humility. And he did it in a very graphic way. I preached about it just a couple of weeks ago. And that's when the almighty king of this universe bent down and washed the disciples' feet. And you remember what Jesus said after he did that? He said in John 13, If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done unto you. Could you do that? Could you bend down and wash somebody's smelly feet? If somebody asks you to go into the bathroom, there's a mess in there. I think there was Sunday, people vomiting. Pardon me for saying it. But I'm sure things were a mess in there. Somebody had to clean that up. Would you be willing to go in and do it? Would you be willing to scrub the floors if you were asked to do that? This is what this is all about. Jesus would have done all of those things. So humility is something that you seek. And as I said, the moment that you think that you have arrived and you say, I am a humble person, you aren't humble. If you're humble, you've replaced pride. You know what happens when you replace pride? You have removed one of the sins that produces, I mean, that prevents, that prevents unity of our church. You have removed one of those sins. So to preserve unity, become a humble person. Paul stated the concept another way in Philippians chapter 2. He said, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind. Let each esteem other better than themselves. And lowliness, it's the very same word, and it means humility. In humility, look at others above yourself. Now, the second concept Paul uses to, to help us preserve unity is meekness. And in meekness, what you do is to maintain power with control. Now, if you hear somebody 
referred to as a meek person, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? What comes to our mind is meekness equals weakness. We think, well, a meek person, that's a, that's a timid person. That's a pipsqueak. That's a mouse and not a man. I mean, you can't, you can't be a meek person. But you know, the Bible never uses the word meek that way. Meekness has nothing at all to do with timidity or with weakness. Meekness in the Bible means a person that has a gentle spirit and he's able to keep his self-control. It's a person who never lashes out and becomes vengeful or vindictive towards other people. Jesus used the word meek in the Sermon on the Mount. And he said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. You know what he's saying? Blessed are those who have godly self-control. Not angry people, not vengeful people but those whose thoughts and actions are always under the control of the Holy Spirit. So meekness means that a person is not self-assertive, he's God-assertive. Now, the origin of the word meek, I think, is, is kind of an interesting thing because it comes from the same word that means to tame a wild animal. For instance, in the Old West... Um, they, you know, they'd go out, they'd catch a bronco, and they would try to tame the horse. And what they call that, they breaking the horse. They would break the horse. And what they meant by that is they would break this, this strong-willed animal and bring this animal into subjection of another's will. Well, that horse is still as strong as he ever was. I mean, when you break the will, the horse is still as strong as he ever was. It's just that you've channeled his will into a completely different direction. You've harnessed the will and all that energy to go in the direction you want it to go. And that's what Paul means by meekness. He means for our will to be broken. What causes strife in a church? When I want to have my way and my will no matter what. I'm going to have my way no matter what you say. And there you have self-willed people, strong-willed people, and they don't have meekness. Now, the pastor's job sometimes is to help control strong-willed people. But the pastor himself has to watch the authority that's invested in him to do that. He has to handle in the right way. You know, sometimes I would like to go up to Christians and take a ruler and just slap them upside the head. I really would sometimes. I'd, why do you do things like that? Why do you act that way? I can't do that. And you know Why? Because it has unwanted repercussions. I wouldn't do that. That's not having your power with self-control. Now, the greatest example that we have of power under control is Jesus Christ himself. When those soldiers came to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, you know what Peter did? Peter thought, the best thing for me to do is try to defend the Lord. I mean, I'm going to show that I'm sticking by Jesus and I'm going to defend Jesus. So he took out his sword and he cut off a man's ear. And you know what Jesus said? That's not the way you do it. I mean, this is not the, not the thing to do. In Matthew 26, he said, Thinkest thou not that I can, or thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my Father, and he shall presently give me more than 12 legions of angels? Jesus had the power to end it all just like that. If he'd wanted to, he had, he had the power to do it. But the way that Jesus was going to be delivered was not to avoid the death of the cross. Jesus would be delivered from death in the resurrection. That was God's way. So Jesus had all the power to do what he wanted to do. But you know what he said? I am in subjection to my Father's will. He surrendered his will to the Father's will. Now that's a distinction that we need to observe. A, 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 a person who is meek is not timid. He's just surrendered himself to the Father's will. 
Now, sometimes a meek person can even display anger. You know, godly people can become angry. But you know when they become angry? It's not because there is an offense against them. It's because there's an offense against God. That's when godly people become angry. You see, it's all right for you to criticize me. You criticize me, that's okay. But if your purpose in criticizing me is to hurt the church and to hurt the unity of the church, then I have a right to be angry. But meekness never shows an air of superiority over another person. So you have that self-control. Now, the third word that Paul uses is long-suffering. And long-suffering means that we patiently endure. Now, patience, as we all know, is one of the hardest Christian virtues. Because the Bible tells us there's only one way to get patience. All of us know the Scripture. In Romans chapter 5, verse 3, And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience. It's a tough thing to get. Now, every time that I think about patience, I think about Noah building the ark. I mean, that, that's the, it's a, you know, we think about Job, but I also think about Noah building the ark. Nobody had ever seen rain before. Nobody, I'm sure, had ever seen a boat like Noah was building before. So how are we going to have a flood, Noah? How is it possible to have a flood? I mean, unless there's some cataclysmic event, there could never be a flood. There is no rain. There can't be a flood. Well, Noah stayed out there for 120 years building the ark. You know, God could have shortened the time it took him to build the ark. Could, could, God, could, could Noah have built the ark in five or ten years if, if God wanted him to, if that was God's plan? He sure could, couldn't he? Noah could have completed the ark in, in, in a short period of time. But Noah stayed out there for 120 years, and people came by, I'm sure, just about every day, and they ridiculed him and said, what a fool that Noah is. But Noah kept on, and finally the flood came. You know what I think? After all that ridicule, Noah was glad to get in the ark. Rain or no rain, he was probably get ready to, to get in the ark. But you know something about Noah? We don't often mention this. The Bible says that when Noah had gathered all the animals and put them in the ark, it was still seven days before it started raining. So here he is, locked up in the ark with all of these animals for seven days. How are you going to feel after one day? Two days. You've been... Two days, it's still no rain. Three days, no rain. Four days, no rain. Five days, no rain. What are you thinking about that time? You know, Noah, the Bible doesn't record that he thought anything other than the flood's coming. What at 120 years of ridicule taught Noah? I can wait seven more days. I can wait as long as it takes because there is a flood coming. And so what happened? Noah gets tossed up and down for 40 days and 40 nights in the flood waters. And Noah spent probably at least 10 to 12 and a half months in the ark before they ever got off of it. And every day, Noah, I think, was grateful that God had given the patience to wait it out. You know, sometimes we get so anxious for God to fix a problem. It's got to be fixed right now. Well, when that happens, think about Noah. God has a purpose in his trials. He may not come today. He may not come tomorrow, but he's coming. He's going to take care of everything. So sometimes God has a purpose in the delay, and in that delay, you get taught patience. Now we have the final word, and this is the word forbearing. He says, forbearing in love. And I think that what he means by forbearing is that we need to be people who are easy to live with. A few weeks ago, we went out to lunch on a Sunday afternoon with uh, Brian and Jennifer Jefferson, Larry and, Larry and Janet, 
uh, and we were sitting there at the table. Corey was sitting across from me, and all of a sudden she says, I want to be a diva. You know what a diva is? You know, actually, the, the word originated coming from, um, uh, it's the same, means the same thing as a prima donna. And the prima donna, a prima donna was the leading female soloist in an opera. Well, since that time, prima donna, has, prima donna has come to mean somebody who's very temperamental, somebody who's conceited, or simply a person that's hard to get along with. I mean, somebody who's hard to live with. If you want to have unity in your church, don't be somebody that's hard to live with. And some people are that way, aren't they? They're just hard to live with. I mean, no matter what you do, they're going to have a complaint. And they're going to make sure that everybody knows what their complaint is. And a person who's really good at this, making complaints, sometimes they don't even have to make a complaint. They just drop little snippets of information everywhere, and everybody knows how unhappy they are, and they get all upset about it. I don't like grumpy people. Do you? Don't be hard to live with, folks. Nobody likes, I don't think, likes grumpy people. And because you're having a bad day doesn't mean I want to share it with you. But then there's also another meaning to the word. You ever heard this saying, love covers a multitude of sins. Do you know most people don't know that that is a quote from the Bible? In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8, it says, And above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover a multitude of sins. You know what that means? It means that you do not make it your business to expose everybody's sin. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. I don't mean that you sweep sin under the rug. And when you find out, I mean, there's a fence against the church or something, you don't say, well, that doesn't matter because somebody's done something against the church. What it does mean is that you don't expose more sin than necessary. In other words, you don't have to be the gossip that goes and tell everybody what's going on. You don't have to be that person. You know what I like? In a sense, this is what I like, is when we finally do have to bring a problem before the church and a sin has to be exposed, that there are people who are sitting out there in the congregation and said, really? I didn't know about that. And you know why they didn't know about it? Because people know they're not the ones who listen to gossip. And so they just don't go tell them because they don't want to hear all the gossip that's going on. Beware of people who always have something to tell you. Now, in my position as the pastor... I get to hear a lot of things. And sometimes I'm very interested in how people come by their information. Lots of times I have to hear these things because rumors can destroy a church. And so I have to hear some things that come by. But I'm interested sometimes, you know, that that a lot of times when I hear things that come to my office, there's two or three or four people that are almost always involved in rumors that are going around. Did you know that? I know it. Almost all the time, two, three, four people are involved in all the rumors. Now, you need to ask yourself, is he talking about me? And if you say, is he talking about me? Yes. If you have to ask yourself the question, yes, I'm talking about you. See, it's all about preserving unity. Now, if you want to do that, you've got to have these four characteristics. If somebody has these, you are working for the unity of your church. Let me finish with this statement. If you fail to preserve peace... Something is lacking in your love. Paul says, endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So the question tonight is, are you a sensitive, saved person? Do you look more highly at others than you do yourself? Do you bear the burdens of others? Are you patient towards other people? Do you get angry because your pride is wounded? 
Or do you get angry because sin is against a great God? There's a difference in those things. God saved me from your followers. And sometimes that's true, isn't it? It surely is. Let's produce unity. Paul tells us how right doctrine produces right practice. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for, again, being here tonight and for uh, everyone who was able to come out. Lord, help us to remember these things and help us to spread the word that we do need unity in our church. Lord, help us to be concerned about other people, be very sensitive to the needs of all the members of our church. May we care about one another and love one another as we should. And Lord, we do thank you for the unity that we do have in this church. So praise you, Lord, for all things. Blessing this invitation tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.